0: Hello, my self-improvement stud. It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. Today, I have a real treat for you in this self-improvement sit-down. Instead of sharing a typical two-minute personal development tip like I do every weekday, subscribe if you haven't already to catch one of those, In the self-improvement sit-down, I take the time to understand industry leaders and what it is about them that's responsible for their greatness. I've had the pleasure of speaking with so many remarkable guests, and this individual certainly fits into that category. Buckle up, settle in, turn that thinking cap on, and get ready for some knowledge. This is self-improvement sit-down number 53 with Greg McKeown. And we are live. Today's guest is Greg McEwen. Greg is the author of one of the most timeless books of recent history, selling more than a million copies of his book, Essentialism. He's a contrarian thinker that writes for publications like the New York Times, Fast Company, and Fortune, and speaks on NPR, NBC, and Fox to challenge conventional wisdom and champion social innovation. Greg recently released a new book called Effortless that teaches us how to be as effective as possible with our energy. And we're going to touch on it, but for now, Greg, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So let's start briefly by touching on essentialism. And just to kind of summarize that, you know, and get everyone on the same page, essentialism is about making sure that you're getting the right things done and even doing less overall, but doing it to a higher quality and with more acute focus. So it's kind of a disciplined approach to exploring what is worthy of your time eliminating those things that aren't required and executing on that which yields the greatest results for you. How did I do? Quick, quick synopsis, but it's terrific. (laughs) But something that I've heard you say before, and this is what I want to dig into is the idea of living life by design and not by default. And I'm curious to know how that incorporates and integrates with the essentialist philosophy. And just if you could elaborate on what that means to you, that'd be great.
1: Well. essentialism in a single word is prioritization. It's taking responsibility for prioritization because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. I mean, think about the people who email you. Uh, It'd be okay if they all somehow had collectively got together uh, and strategized your life and what would be your highest point of contribution. And then they start to send you email. I mean, this would be okay. You can outsource uh, to your inbox, uh, you know, the decisions of your life. But on the basis that that hasn't happened, <laughs> uh, the risk is that you, if you, if you live in your inbox, uh, then, then you just start to uh, become a function of many different people's agenda. Uh, it's not a strategic way of living, it's not intentional, it's not designful, uh, it becomes reactive. And you can experience that frustration in your life as you feel frenetic and frantic. Uh, stretch too thin at work or at home, uh, busy but not productive, where you, you feel like uh, everyone's, maybe other people's agenda are hijacking your day all the time. I mean, that's the type of experience you're going to live. But beyond the experience you have, it will affect the outcomes you achieve. You'll start to plateau in your progress or even fail altogether. So the costs of living by default are high. Uh, you know, living not just by design, but designing around what is most essential is a completely different strategy. Uh, And and most people, if they're given the two, will choose, you know, will choose to live by design if you say, which one do you want? Uh, But what happens is that typically we fall into the first category without really meaning to. Uh, And so we fall as a result into the undisciplined pursuit of more. Um, that's the cultural norm Mm -hmm. uh, rather than the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Uh, And the disciplined pursuit of less but better is a far more effective strategy for being able to break through to the next level uh, of contribution.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the gold standard, right? Is you figure out what's most meaningful to you. And then again, the essentialism kind of philosophy brings you back to how do I pursue that so narrowly, that we end up reaping the specific results, not just general results. You mentioned something interesting that I've been thinking a lot about, which is kind of living a reactive life, you know, and if you're living a reactive life, then that starts kind of pulling at you in ways that you, again, you mentioned you're answering to other people, but kind of the alternative is just add a C to that, right? So if it's not reactive, you could choose to live creatively. And I feel like it's one or the other, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a decision tree that you need to make, but as you mentioned, culture and society kind of pushes us toward preferring the kind of law of least resistance, which is defaulting to what other people expect of you. And I'm curious to know, kind of to, to broaden that understanding, like that influence, right? Where does that actually come from? Is that is that passed down from generation to generation? Is it just embedded in the kind of economic systems that we have? Or where do you think this kind of default mindset comes from? Because we might be able to point it out more effectively once we understand the root of it.
1: Well, I remember. I mean, this is something I, I write about in the new book, *In Effortless*. But I, I remember this moment when I was uh, standing in front of um, a mirror, dressed from head to toe in a stormtrooper costume, <laughs> and uh, and in that moment, I mean, I'm about to buy quite an expensive, movie quality level stormtrooper costume, and and just in that moment before actually doing it, I'm like. Not one part of me wants this. I don't actually want to buy this. So why am I here? How did I get here? (laughs) And as I reflect on it, I realized it was a 30-year journey that had led to this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, That 30 years before Return of the Jedi is coming out, Uh, my older brother said, well, wouldn't it be so great to own like a real costume from the movie? And something about his conviction, an older brother influence plus all the hype that just got lodged in my subconscious. That will be something great to achieve, mm. and then thirty years of subconscious uh, intent goes on until there I am about to buy it. Fortunately, you know, was able to say no. Let's not do that. The that became a shorthand for, particularly for my wife Anna, with me to just ask about any number of objectives. Is this a stormtrooper? <laughs> Is this so that now that's true with goals. I mean, very often goals are powerful. And that's part of their challenges that they can outlive their usefulness, and they still have an impact. Mm. We have to be careful and do a bit of spring cleaning with our goals. Sometimes just pause, why do you want it? Do you do you even want it anymore? Uh, is it something that you used to want that just doesn't matter now to you, or it's not relevant anymore? Hmm. Uh, I I think that's, I think that's a very important skill to have, not just to set goals, but to unset goals.
0: Yeah. What's your, what's your frequency with that kind of spring cleaning updating just from a, a personal standpoint? I'm curious now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I go through a process, you know, certainly every six months where I, there's a, there's a big general conference in you know, in the church that I uh, go to, and they have a worldwide conference. And, and so every six months, I have like a two day period where you've got all these uh, speakers and inspiration, and it's a chance to also evaluate and I'll evaluate, I go through a journal about every 90 days. So I'll have two books, basically, Mm -hmm. to review what's happened, what's been successful, what's gone well. What are the main insights? What were the what were any key revelatory experiences that you had that you can draw on now? And so that is a, a highly focusing uh, exercise for me. And then with it as well, what things aren't useful anymore? What stormtroopers are here? What things, you know, just just maybe some of them are yes, those would be fine, but not yet things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I certainly think every six months, I used to advocate and sometimes still do this a personal quarterly offsite. Mm. Uh, but whether, whether you do it every 90 days or as I found particularly helpful now every six months, um, that's a kind of a cadence. I think that's a, it's a good process, uh, for, for the big things for looking at the, at the big trade-offs we want to make. Awesome.
0: Yeah. I, I'm trying to find my groove with it. You know, everyone kind of has their own process and rhythms and cadences. That's so just, it's good insight to know kind of the way that you've been able to incorporate that into mm. to your workflow. Um, yeah. It's really interesting, you know, and that kind of comes back to the point of prioritization, right? Of essentialism equals prioritization. It's, you know, you're thinking that you're adding extra work to hit these different milestones or these different periods of time. And then you're adding this new assignment, which is to review your goals. but That's kind of what you argue in the book, right? Is that sometimes you do a little bit extra in really, really specific ways in order to focus on how you can be more effective with your energy, you know, beyond that, you know, and priorities, I think is one of the most difficult things for people to understand, because again, there are certain pressures that you hear from others that set your priorities versus what are your own priorities. So I'm curious to know if there's a kind of like a a quick or easy, or I don't know, just an effective way to kind of come upon your personal priorities. Um, maybe it's similar to the exercise you just described or is there another kind of way to audit some of those things?
1: I think one way to audit it is just to be, is to increase the extremity of your criteria. Mm. Um, you know, if you think about the the closet metaphor, you, you, often our closets get overwhelmed with stuff. There's too much in them. They're, they're messy. It's chaotic in there. And that's really the undisciplined pursuit of more. I mean, that's mm-hmm. more stuff's coming in. Uh, nothing's going out or not enough is going out. And even if we get to that moment of let's eliminate something now, you pick it up as if to get rid of it. And then you think, well, you know, maybe this would be useful in the future sometime, maybe it's the world's broadest criteria. So the item goes back on the shelf and, and what you want instead of that is more extreme criteria. Like, do I love it? Do I wear it all the time? Does it spark joy to use Marie Kondo's, question. That's all what I would describe as closer to a 90% rule. So that you're saying anything that's below a 90% becomes at least questioned and maybe eliminated. And so instead you have just the essential, You know, staying with the metaphor items of clothing in mm-hmm. your closet. And it turns out less is better. Uh, less but better is better. Sure. And so in our lives, similarly, we need to ask more extreme questions that we want to say, look, what is the very best use of me? Mm -hmm. What is my highest point of contribution? Uh, What am I particularly either talented at, or I could become really great at? Uh, What am I deeply passionate about versus just I'm interested in? Uh, And so this this more extreme series of questions helps us to, to discern between the essential few, the top 10%, the 90% or above, mm-hmm. and not only the bottom 10% or the non-essentials, but even that middle, the, the, the muddle in the middle where we can spend lots of time saying yes to pretty good things, but they're not actually the essential things. Uh, so I think that just being, having more extreme criteria is one way to start discerning a clear yes uh from from an okay yes or or eventually something that's a clear no oh i love that yeah and i mean that totally relates back to
0: life by design not by default because in advance you can figure out what those criteria are right and if you if you set those in advance, then you're just abiding by them. And no longer is it this emotional decision where you're parting ways with this knickknack that you've had for so many years that represents all of these things. It's what purpose does it serve? And you have that criteria in place to know if it serves a meaningful purpose, then it stays. And and you already have that discernment in place in advance. So I, I love that. I'm a huge advocate for that. And you articulated that extremely well. So mm. something that I need to be more intentional about in kind of my life systems is... What stays, what goes, and how do you decide that in advance?
1: Really, really powerful. And one of the additional questions I think you can ask that sort of is um, a a nail in the coffin, how much would I invest if I was starting this today? Because otherwise we get guilty of sunk cost bias. And that's Mm -hmm. true, literally true of the stuff in our closet. Uh, It's called the endowment effect. Uh, And that brain heuristic basically says that we value things more because we own them. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, we have all sorts of commitments and opportunities we have that just like the Stormtrooper costume, we we value it more because we own it or we value it more because we've been we've been thinking about it for a long time. And that biases us to keep going. Well, I don't want to give up now. You know, I mean, I'm standing here in the store. It's 30 years. I mean, I've got to do it now. Uh, But of course, that's not smart at all if in fact we wouldn't invest in it if we were starting today. And yeah. so that's, that. that for me was true when I quit law school. I was it's nine months into, into studying law and quit. If I'd had sunk cost bias about it, I'd have spent even more years going down a path that I wasn't actually interested or committed in going down. Mm-hmm. And so that was an enormous liberating choice, a trade-off that has led to a higher contribution than the path I would have been on.
0: Yeah. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, you know, because your ego is kind of what's, I I think these cognitive biases are, you know, driven and really um, rooted in the ego, right? It's just kind of the way that you're relating with yourself, your achievements, your identity almost around the decisions that you've made. Oh, now you've got to tell your parents that you're dropping out. You got to do this, right? There's like this whole context of things that just convolutes the decision. But if you can, Hone in on what's best for you and essential to you, then that kind of removes these biases, and you're allowed to just kind of live and exist how you want to. So with that all in mind. um, And there's so much more to essentialism that we can cover. And it's almost a disservice not to go into more detail because it really is a book that changed my life. And I know it's changed millions of people's lives. So thank you so much for being that high level contribution. And thank you for not staying in law school because now we have this book as a product. So um, you're almost kind of an example of what you were just describing. But so now let's move on to um, your new book which is called effortless. And if essentialism is about doing the right things and it serves as the what of the equation, you know, what to do, then effortless complements it and adds the how. It's by focusing on the process and the important activities that you need to do and how do you make them easier to complete? Not necessarily easy to do, but easier than they used to be. There's kind of a, I don't know, we were touching on this a little bit, but kind of this undertone in society of listening to other people, um, kind of living by others' expectations. And what that often does, it kind of creates churn and burn, uh, a lot of corporate burnout, a lot of just kind of people spinning their wheels and not necessarily getting where they want to go. And I feel like that's kind of one of the motivations for writing this book is teaching an alternative way. Um, And I know there's a really eloquent framework to it. I would love to get into it in a little bit. But before kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of the book, just more philosophically, I'd love for you to just share how we can get more creative about the way that we do tasks knowing that effort is one of the components and how can we start thinking about doing things that have maybe
1: a little less resistance? Yeah, I mean, effort is so important, um, but it's finite. So there's just a certain amount of effort that we can put in and still remain healthy. Uh, Healthy, if you you want to be healthy physically, if you want to be healthy emotionally, if you want to be healthy in your relationships, uh, you know, if you want to be in a healthy position so you can sustain performance over time, there's a certain range that you can be in. So if, you, if you're at, let's say, X contribution today, but you want to get to 10X contribution, you can't work 10X harder. Mm. So what do you do if you want to go to a much higher level of success, a much higher level of contribution, but you're already out of space? And so now the question is, is, is how do you utilize your effort, Uh, what do you do with it? How do you make sure you get a high return on effort, an ROE? Uh, and, And that's really what the book's about is saying when people aren't conscious of this, when they use a blunt paradigm that just basically says, effort equals reward, so if I want a higher reward, therefore I work harder, right? Like if you get into that, then you will plateau in your progress, mm. or start to fail altogether. And so it's 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 as important. This question, to me, is as important as the question uh, I posed in essentialism. To me, I have come to discover that how we go about pursuing what's essential is as important as the essential things themselves. Uh, and so, and so that sort of that the opportunity is. What if you could make the essential things uh, far easier? What if they were the easiest things in your life instead of the hardest things? What if you could construct systems that stack the deck in your favor? Uh, What if you can, you're using the same effort, but instead of using it just to get one result today uh, for your effort, and then tomorrow you you have to do it again. You have to put an effort once and get the result again. What if you could do it in a way that, suddenly results are flowing to you. Uh, and and this has tremendous importance. If you care about making a difference in the world, mm. uh, then, then it matters tremendously. Uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, many, many well-intended people who know what's important and are pursuing it, they burn out and they still haven't produced the results that they want to. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I think it's a, it, it is, a, maybe it's a path less traveled, but it's, uh, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's an important one.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you're describing some, <laughs> some serious nuggets here. I mean, something that I heard and maybe it's just a different way of saying what you said, but it's kind of the difference between linear relationships and exponential relationships, right? If something's linear, it's input, effort, output results. And if you work harder, then you produce more results that are proportionate to the amount of effort you add. But then if you're thinking of how do you lower the barrier to entry, how do you magnify and amplify some of the things that you're already doing, create an exponential, create a compounding relationship with those things. Now, the same amount of effort applied can now represent a much larger return of outcome. And I love that idea of ROE, you know, return on effort, because let's all audit that. Let's all think about how hard we're working to achieve certain things. And is there a better way to do these things and achieve the same outcome, you know, because It's just really a matter of asking the question and thinking about it. And I I think that's actually a relationship, perhaps, that your two books, Essentialism and Now Effortless, have together. As I was describing, there is this kind of idea of with Essentialism that you are to put in a little bit of extra work. You add a little bit more to your plate in order to make the decisions that then make your life simpler after that. And now with Effortless, you add a little more extra work. In order to build the systems that you need, so you can run on autopilot with less effort moving forward. So it's almost kind of like a front load your design and then benefit from the outcomes on the back end. And it's just a matter of kind of, really you know being intentional about what those things need to design are and knowing what to design in order to produce those results so i, I don't yes. know if i don't know if you followed that but that's something i i just read into
1: yeah i like it and and i i think that the you know an example i think would be helpful the the you know a friend of mine jessica jackley she goes to to africa with a group of people and when she's there she meets an entrepreneur who fits so um directly into the kind of challenge that Ephelus is trying to address. This is someone who's working at subsistence level. So she's selling produce on the side of the road and it, most days she will sell just enough to be able to then feed herself and her family. The next day she has to do it again and she can't take a day off because then they don't eat. So mm-hmm. it's just completely survival. Now, what would it take for her to change that, to create a system where results were, were easier and, and there was a, a, some margin in it so that she can start getting ahead? Well, it turns out not very much, it takes $500. Uh, it's you know pretty typical micro loan. And what that loan would allow her to do is, uh, is to go and work with the, the fisheries directly, uh, work with the farmers directly, and set up a system where she can miss the middleman uh, therefore get some profit and again, to be able to then make the future a little easier for her to be able to keep building her business. So that's like sort of level one is Jessica coming along and saying, okay, I'll provide that $500. I'll either give it to you or loan it to you. But this is a story of systems on systems because she goes beyond that inspired by Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen bank and, and some other presentations that they were seeing at the, just right around the same time. And they say, well, what if we could build a little, little website that would allow people, you know, all over the world to say, Okay, I want to invest in this too. I'm going to provide a microloan. And this is where Kiva is born. And instead of five hundred dollars to this one entrepreneur that would help her create a system, they created a system that creates systems. And so it means that now it's $1.3 billion of loans instead of $500. Or what do you call that? uh, If that isn't effortless results? I mean, what What? it's no exaggeration to say that taking that second approach, I mean, what kind of level of impact is that? Is that 10x more impactful? Is it 100x? 1000x? I mean, if you do the math, it's well beyond a million X impact. And, and by the way, all those loans continue to be available because 97% of people repay those loans. So it's just this uh, residual impact. It's uh, and, and and that that to me is sort of an illustration of the value proposition of, of effortless building systems that make it as effortless as possible for results to flow, you know, without additional effort. Yeah, I mean, that's such an incredible
0: example and I hadn't appreciated the complexity of what that was in, in Jessica's intentionality in, going layers deeper in building infrastructure in order to accommodate some of these things, right? So that's a beautiful example. And uh, I mean, there's much more that we can learn from her book, Claywater Brick, um, and kind of her her story in creating Kiva, which is just an incredible cause. But um, anyway, but yeah, that's a fantastic example. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that a lot of kind of what you just referenced is kind of almost pointing at or alluding to kind of the different steps that you have in terms of building a more effortless life, right? So there are three different steps, three different phases in the book. You call it the effortless state, the effortless action, and then at the end, as you were describing, effortless results. So I'm curious to know if you could kind of walk us through those different components, how they interface with each other, how they communicate, and then how together it creates this package, which is what we're looking for at the end of it.
1: Yeah. So let's just, let's just build it from the place, you know, we were at effortless results. So effortless results are results that flow to you uh, they, they, you know, if these are results that can, can exist even when you're sleeping in an extreme sense, you could even use the death test and say, well, look, if I, if I die tomorrow, would the result continue? Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, that helps you to know whether you're dealing with linear results, which is, result based on you directly doing something to make it happen and residual results, which is something that the system is now producing with or without you. Um, now, you've got to work backwards from there. Why doesn't everyone just do that? It sounds easy enough. <laughs> yeah. The reason we don't just immediately do that, I mean, part of it is we don't necessarily know this is even an option, but it's also because so much of our effort and energy is being consumed just surviving, maybe not in the same way as the entrepreneur uh, that I was just talking about, Elizabeth. Uh, but still, we're, we're still in a slightly reactive state where we're just so much effort is being consumed, just keeping us just above water, just stop us from drowning. So in order to get effortless results, you have to create some buffer, some space to be able to design systems. And I don't mean that you spend all of your time creating systems, but even if you said, okay, well, I'm going to be a you know, 10% designer, you know, 10% of my energy is going to go to that. Well, where do you get the 10%? Where do you get that from if you're just barely above drowning right now? Well, mm. that's where you get to effortless action. Effortless action is saying, well, what if you could remove some of the unnecessary expectations, perfectionism, over complication, over engineering, over thinking, you know, all of those overs mm-hmm. that are making getting a, a result today harder than it needs to be. Yeah, so so it's a, well, I don't think it's a trivial example, but it's a, a down to earth example where my son was uh, was trying to get his uh, Eagle Scout by the time he turned 14, it was a stretch goal. It was big, it's fairly overwhelming. Uh, we, we tried to streamline the whole process and they made great progress. In fact, it completed everything, including the final Eagle project, which is a significant achievement but it's not over yet. You have to get it over the line. And over the line means you have to finish the final report. Mm. Uh, And I know of people that have done everything, but that final report. And then like years went by, they procrastinated it for years, never got it over the line and didn't get their eagle as a result. So, you know, the, the task itself, just for whatever reason, just is too much. So that started happening to us. First, it was a few days, then weeks, then it started to be a couple of months. And so we started asking a few questions to make it more effortless to get that task done once. It's a project. We're not going to do it 10 times. But if you can simplify your process, here are some of the questions. What does done look like? Mm. Not having a vague sense of it, but very clear. What does done look like? Well, we've taken it to the scout office and they have stamped it and they've said, yes, we accept (laughs) it. That is done. So now you say, well, now we know that's done. What are, the, what, what are the minimum number of steps necessary to do that? Not the maximum number, but the minimum number. What we don't want to, we, we don't want to procrastinate because we're worried about going a second mile and all bells and whistles that they are not going to require or need. And it was easy to see why we were already overcomplicating it and being overwhelmed because we'd seen some people's reports that were some of them unbelievable you know, some wooden glossy boxes that have been designed and built and just amazing stuff. And we were just, we just, there wasn't the space for that. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, what, what do they need to, in order to stamp it, what are the minimum number of steps for, for completion? So we just did the minimum things. Uh, then we said, we said, well, what's the very first obvious first step? Let's say it that way. Uh, and that was, well, you know, let's not worry about the 10th step, even in our slim down plan streamlined plan, but what's the very first thing instead of worrying about everything else, you know, go to the store, buy a three ring binder. Oh, we can do that. Okay. That's doable. That's, that's (laughs) right. That's, let's go do the first thing. I love it. And, and, and and so on. And so, so then in a very steady pace, we just worked on it a little bit every day. I just kept on following up. I, I, it wasn't my job to do it, but just to support and follow up a little bit every day, but not missing a day until the thing is done a couple of weeks later and it's done. Uh, He got his Eagle Scout one week before he turned 14. Mission accomplished. But that's an example of effortless action. Mm -hmm. You're saying, yes, there's going to be effort, but let's not waste our effort on things that are going to not actually help us progress and achieve what we're trying to achieve. And And so you can see if you start to do effortless action, it creates a bit more space to be able to even think about systems and how you might improve your systems. And then finally, before you get even to effortless action, uh, a place that you can get tremendous rebate of energy is in this effortless state. This is the least obvious part of productivity. Uh, most times, as soon as you say productivity, people want, okay, give me the actions to be able to be more efficient. What I've just been talking about, examples of that, nothing wrong with that. But what I have observed is that a great deal, a huge percentage of people's mental and emotional energy are being consumed, not by the task itself, but by the other baggage, the stormtroopers that keep us from even getting to the action. Actually, that's what was happening for us with the project. It wasn't the task that was hard. It was all our thinking about the task. Oh, it has to be amazing. It's gonna be beautiful. We've seen what it has to be like and it's so much and we've got to just do it so well and so right. None of that's action. All of that is the state that we're in. It's the mindset, it's the clutter, it's the noise. And sometimes people can have maybe 50, 60, 70, 80, sometimes higher than that. 90% of their mental emotional energy is consumed with stuff that has nothing to do with the work itself. It's not, so they're using up all of that energy before they even start. And so that's why the model begins there. So I've started with results and then gone to action and then state. And I've done it that way because we know what we're trying to achieve, but here are the ways to start creating enough space to be able to make room to design and build systems that work for us. Uh, that that's the order.
0: Yeah. No, you're talking about so many obvious things when they're voiced, but they're so non-obvious when you're actually experiencing it. You know, everyone can relate to getting 95% of the way there and then just never closing the door on it. Right. And it's just, for whatever reason, it's that, that final bit that people just struggle with it. You know, it's, it's either that, or then it's the, the mindset of what is the task in front of you and, as you were describing taking that first step you know that first action was to to buy the binder it's just like i chuckled because it's so true everything that we want to accomplish starts with something that we can definitely do and it's just getting yourself in motion is all it takes a lot of the time to get to where you want to go you just need to start taking steps and if you can do the really small bite-sized version of it it's just a really really effective way to kind of initiate this cascade you know so there's there's a lot to be learned from that. And again, to summarize, you know, it's the effortless state is kind of the mindset, the effortless action is what are you actually going to be doing in order to create the effortless results, which isn't over-engineered. It's exactly what it needs to be. And, And actually I want to touch on that because you kind of opened my perspective a little bit around, you know, like, Oh, you're, seeing other people and the expectations and standards that you have to live up to based on their performance. And then you have to add the bells and whistles. And it's almost kind of like you might feel like you're selling yourself short if you're not putting in that same kind of quality, but at the same time, you're determining what quality you want to build it at. So there's kind of that disconnect between the overachiever and the wanting to make it the best it can possibly be versus making it good enough. And I feel like the idea of good enough um, is something that people shy away from. So how do you reason with
1: that kind of component of this? Well, I think you have to separate the process for progress with the desire for exceptional outcome. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with desiring exceptional outcome on on certain things, if they matter to you, if if exceptional is useful. Not everything has to be exceptional, but if you care mm-hmm. about that outcome, you know, great. But the process for getting there is sort of like, uh, embracing the imperfect process to perfection. Uh, the, the illustration from this, one of my favorite case studies uh, for, for for Effortless is the story of the Kramer Prize, which was, Henry Kramer was a, a British industrialist who wanted to nudge um, human-powered flight forward. And he thought it was an achievable goal. This was you know, 50 years after... Um, after the Wright brothers had shown that flight was really sustainable and achievable. It's only 10 years before uh, Buzz Aldred and Neil Armstrong will be walking on the moon. And so he thinks, look, if I can just put a prize, it will just help people to build what is effectively a bike with wings. I mean, just (laughs) sustainable. And so he launches the prize and, and off it goes. Five years come and go 10 years, 15 years. I mean, this is 17 years later now and no one has achieved the goal until Paul McCready comes along. Paul McCready is broke. Um, he It's part of his incentive for even going for the prize. He just actually needs the money. He's not well funded. He doesn't have an institution behind him. Uh, he can't afford to build elegant machines. And as he's staring at the problem, he suddenly realizes everybody is, uh, is trying to solve the wrong problem. The problem everyone is trying to solve is how do we build an elegant machine that's gorgeous and amazing and it's impressive that we'll be able to achieve this output and he thinks it's the opposite what we have to do is build something that that can crash be as ugly as you like but it has to be able to crash and be rebuilt fast and cheap Hmm. that's the problem and as soon as he's discovered that, the whole process becomes so much easier because they, they build the they call it the albatross, and this thing could 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 crash and they would literally, he says we, we could just stick a broom handle on, put some tape on, and it would be back up again in the air. So what that meant is that they could test their machine four or five times on a test day. The competitors would crash their machines one time back to the drawing board, go back and redesign six months later, they go out for another test day. So sometimes he would test them one day as many times as a competitor in the lifetime of their endeavor. Mm -hmm. And so it took them 223 attempts before they were successful, won the Kramer prize. And then the second Kramer prize, which was to do the same thing, but to cross the English channel, which they also did. Um, following the same process. The, the, that to me is a key because it wasn't an aeronautical insight that allowed them to progress so much faster and break through to the next level. I mean, they achieved something exceptional, but how did they achieve it? They had the courage to be rubbish. They reduced the cost of failure. And that's what we want because what we're trying to construct for our lives is asymmetric bets where there's not much downside to taking action, but there is a potential upside. And so if you can do that and repeat that many times over, then you start to be able to learn much faster than in other circumstances. And and so I, I think that that's, to me, that's the ideal. Have high standards, fantastic. But recognize that your journey there is going to be messy and it's going to have failure. So now don't try to avoid all failure. Embrace failure as part of your design process and just make the failure as cheap as you can so that you can learn fast and keep progressing in your journey. That might be one of the best answers I've ever heard
0: anyone have <laughs> in a conversation. There are so many lessons in that case study. I mean, of course, it was addressing the question of like, design requirements, right? And the, the expectation of when people are associating their work with the prize, they want it to be congruent in terms of, oh, this quality and this sustainability. But if you wanna actually get the job done, think about it differently and get creative and embrace the entrepreneurial you know trial and error process. If you're trying to create something new, that was just a really powerful example of how we need to embody some of these creative thinking mechanisms and, and understand that you know the effort, right? The effort required to go from iteration to iteration to iteration ended up producing the winning product right so that's almost and it's a perfect example of how this effortless framework ends up actually producing real results for people in their lives so thank you thank you for dropping that one holy <laughs> moly that that one really i got to i got to go back and listen to that <laughs> Greg, it's it's gonna be tough, but um, if there's kind of one takeaway or one thing that, you know, people should really understand about your work effortless, kind of a new way of thinking about the way that they're spending their time, the things that they're spending their time on, um, what, what is that one thing that you wanna make sure people understand?
1: There's a story, um, a very touching story that I came across in my research of of a woman who is with her son uh, as he was dying at the very end of his life, they're in hospital. And she knows that the moment is coming. And so she gets up in to bed with him just to kind of be close to him. And then right at that point where he's not really fully here but he's not really there yet. He's in that in-between, he opens his eyes and he just suddenly says, oh, mom, It's all so simple. It's all so simple. And and those are his final words after that, he dies. And that just, to me, speaks volumes about, about what essentialism is trying to do, but particularly now with what effortless is trying to do. Effortless is about simplification essentialism, prioritization, effortless is simplification, removing the friction that we sometimes add. And I, I suppose it, it comes with a question, um, which is, how are we making our lives more difficult than they need to be? And as soon as we ask that, it's so freeing. We may be holding on to mental, emotional burdens, all sorts of things that aren't serving us at all, keep us in a state of suffering instead of an effortless state. We may be having all sorts of assumptions and adding so many steps and things that we don't really need to that's making our action effortful uh, instead of effortless. And it certainly is true that we can get to the point where our systems are making everything harder for us to achieve. Uh, But if we build systems that simplify they can get to the point where there's like no friction in them and things start flowing to us. Uh, I mean, that, that really there is what to me grows out of that question. How are we making life harder than it needs to be? Profound Greg, thank you so much.
0: This has been enlightening, inspiring, and just, there's a lot to digest from it. And that's just, it's interesting because it takes, it takes someone who is really good at what they do to make something so complex and complicated, simplified for other people to understand. And that's what you're doing with your books is you're creating these very simple representations of complicated and complex processes. And your ability to do that is just a testament to your knowledge and who you are. So thank you for everything you're doing. And thank you for sharing a little slice of it today. So I'm really, really grateful for it.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. There you have it, the legendary
0: Greg McEwan. We started off talking about essentialism and this philosophy that you should limit the things you have on your plate so that you can execute on the things that are most effective for you and your goals. It's replacing the undisciplined pursuit of more for the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Then we jumped into effortless, the complement to essentialism. Once we know what we need to be doing, How do we make that activity as easy as possible? We heard stories and examples about generating effortless residual outcomes, taking effortless actions, and entering effortless mentalities and states of being. The thought embodies the idea of working smarter, not harder, and seemingly everything abides by that rule. Greg's books, Effortless and Essentialism, are both available anywhere you purchase books. I highly recommend reading both. And if you're like me and you like not only Greg's thoughts today, but his smooth British accent, then you can check out his podcast called The What's Essential Podcast, which I have linked in the description of this episode. I want to leave you with Greg's final takeaway. How are we making life harder than it needs to be? Think about it. It's true for all of us. And as Greg described, there's a lot of opportunity to discover in answering that question for yourself. Thank you so much for listening. It takes a special person to do it. And I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.